You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The Crown Prince has denied this, the Crown Prince is not aware of this. Even the senior leadership of our intelligence service was not aware of this. This was an operation that was a rogue operation. This was an operation where individuals uh, ended up exceeding the authorities and responsibilities they had. They made the mistake when they killed Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate and they tried to cover up for it. This is an aberration, this is a mistake, this is a criminal act and those responsible for it will be punished. Nearly three weeks they've had to come up with some sort of excuse and that's the best Saudi Arabia can do. My guests Mary Dejewski and John Everard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the United States' threat to withdraw from a treaty with Russia that Russia has previously threatened to withdraw from, the ongoing search for an actually functional, plausible version of Brexit after the largest demonstration against it yet, and a brief voyage into the paranormal. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and John Everard, former British ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea. Not all at once, though. That would have been time-consuming. Welcome both. Uh, we will start tonight with Saudi Arabia's acknowledgement of what the rest of the world concluded a little less than three weeks ago, that the Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered on the premises of the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The Saudis are nevertheless still trying to spin it, blaming rogue elements and denying any foreknowledge by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Difficult though any of this is to believe, it is made even more so by the release of footage which appears to show one of the operatives suspected of killing Khashoggi wearing the dead man's clothes in an apparent bid to underpin the narrative that he left the consulate prior to disappearing. Um, John, drawing on your expertise as an emissary abroad, though not that I'm accusing you of ever having participated in any such thing, um, how do you rate this as an exercise in reputation management from the Saudis? I don't think they get a gold star for this one. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to imagine uh, any way they could have handled this worse. I mean, doing it in the first place well, I, I think, yes, we, we, st we, we start with first principles. Maybe don't kill people who've made mild criticisms of your government on the premises of your diplomatic missions. Precisely. Or indeed anywhere. Yeah, or indeed anywhere. Uh, but the, it, whichever way you do it, not a good starting point. But if you start from that point, nevertheless, uh, trying to pretend that uh, the person concerned was killed during a, uh, a an argument just using better knuckles and that his body somehow dematerialized in ways you'd rather not be asked about. Not a great way of explaining facts to inquisitive journalists. Uh, having and, and then when you discover that your host government has been bugging your consulate and has a complete <laughs> audio recording of the proceedings, trying just to pretend this hasn't happened and will it please go away again, not smart. No, I, I think they fail their, their, their story management GCSEs. Uh, it, it is an extraordinary story, Mary. It, it is one of those peculiar news stories which somehow weirdly makes less sense the more of it you learn. I is there any reason at all to buy the line now being spun that news of Jamal Khashoggi's murder 
was a complete surprise to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, even if, if we're being really charitable, is there maybe the whole Thomas a. Beckett scenario that he sort of, will somebody rid me of this turbulent Washington priest, post columnist, Washington priest, you can see where I was going with that, Washington <laughs> post columnist, uh, that he wasn't really being serious, but some overambitious courtier took him at his word? Well, I think there's always a problem with that uh, argument, which is that it's hard to believe that he didn't know, but if he didn't know, then he should have known. And Indeed. that reflects extremely badly on his authority, his um, grasp of what's going on. Um, and it suggests, if you accept that, um, that considerable parts of his administration are out of his control, which is at least as bad as knowing that it was happening without actually giving the order. Uh, John, a, a comprehensive discussion of aspects of this story I don't understand would take us several hours, but on a on just on a point of diplomatic protocol, and I, I grant you that we are in uncharted territory on that front. As far as you can understand it, why has Turkey not as yet told all Saudi diplomatic missions in the country, pack up and get out? This is absolutely not on. And actually, I would argue, why have more countries around the world not reacted in much the same way? I think, well, firstly, Turkey clearly doesn't want its relation with Saudi Arabia to get any worse than they already are. Uh, it is uh, it's having to sort of say some very difficult things about w what happened there. And there's a cost, you know, to... But at the to, same time, I mean, the original news of this actually seems to have come out with the sanction of the Turkish authorities because without their say-so, nobody would ever have heard of this. The, the, yes. the, the, the details that we do have, variously reliable though they may be, do all seem to come from pro-government Turkish newspapers which are clearly being fed at by Turkish sources. Well, that's right, yes. But I don't think that was actually a calculated attempt to destroy a relation with Saudi Arabia. It was to embarrass the Saudis, yes. But then closing down diplomatic missions uh, at a time where you probably need to be talking to the Saudis more than ever may not be such a great idea. That's the first point. Second point, it wasn't, remember, actually the consulate staff who did this. This was a hit squad. And we've got this bizarre uh, uh, um, moment on the tape where you hear the consul saying, if you're going to do this, as in, you know, hack this man apart and cut his fingers off, please don't do it in my office, I'll get into trouble. Um, suggesting at least some distance between what the consular staff are thinking is going on and what the hit squad are doing. Tellingly, remember that the head of the hit squad at that point turns to the consul and says, if you want to live when you go back to Arabia, just shut up. Uh, Mary, the, the Saudis are now reported to have, have rounded up you know, the usual suspects. 18 people have been arrested in Riyadh. Two people have been sacked. At the same time, Germany uh, is talking about cancelling arms sales. Canada also threatening to... Do you get the sense the Saudis are going to be able to make this go away? Because obviously to make anything go away, you need a certain amount of cooperation and complicity from your interlocutors as well. Now, for all the obvious reasons, I'm sure... Uh, all Western governments with any relationship with Saudi Arabia would prefer this not to have happened. But that notwithstanding, are the Saudis, when I say the Saudis, Prince Mohammed bin Salman in particular, is he going to be able to get out from under this? Well, I think, you know, that is probably the biggest question of all. Um, 
And I suppose, to an extent, that may depend on the continuing diplomatic fallout. I mean, I was slightly surprised that it seemed to me that the diplomatic fallout initially was um, considerably weaker than um, one might have expected. Although, of course, there was no admission and you could at least call into question um, the information that was coming out of Turkey, at least to that point. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting, I think that the United States is actually in a slightly stronger position in part because even though people have criticized Trump's reaction, um, in some ways he has the whip hand here um, and he he's sort of unpredictable enough and almost authoritarian enough to do something unpredictable and strong in response to something if, if, if he thinks that this is completely out of order, then he might do something that would be unexpected of the US. I think it puts Britain in probably the worst position of all because we don't have that degree of clout and we are on the verge of leaving the European Union. We're looking for trade deals all over. Saudi Arabia is one of the countries that we want to continue to court, particularly for arms sales and jobs in the UK. And we look as though we're following and weaker than the United States on the one hand. And on the other, we've got Angela Merkel, who obviously whose country doesn't sell quite as many arms to Saudi Arabia as we do. Um, saying she's suspending all arms sales forthwith. I think the UK would have done um, quite a lot better than it's done, at least to announce that as a first step. I well, think a lot depends on whether or not the Figaro story that the Allegiance Council is currently meeting in secret is accurate. If the Allegiance Council, this is the body uh, in the rather murky world of uh, the Saudi regime that decides on the succession, if the Allegiance Council is indeed meeting, then Mohammed bin Salman is dead meat. And almost certainly Khalid, his younger brother, will be appointed. Okay, well, there's more on this obviously coming up during the week. Uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey is threatening to reveal all in the Turkish parliament tomorrow. Uh, and if, in case you missed it, uh, Saturday's edition of the Foreign Desk looked into the potential implications in greater detail. That's available on our website. Let's move on to Moscow, much as US National Security Advisor John Bolton has. He's visiting the Russian capital ahead of the United States' anticipated withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty of which the US claims Russia is in serial violation. Among those critical of the move is one of the treaty's original 1987 signatories, Mikhail Gorbachev, last leader of the Soviet Union. In remarks unlikely to prompt US President Donald Trump to rethink his position, Gorbachev said that the American delusion was delusion, decision, you can, it's a Freudian slip right there, decision, who writes this, was reckless and, quote, not the work of a great mind. Um... Mary, what? Always an interesting question where Trump and indeed where John Bolton throughout his career is concerned. What is he doing? What do they want out of this? Well, I think that is an extremely interesting question. Um, but I think you can see John Bolton's fingerprints all over this. Um, and the coincidence of his being in Moscow exactly at the time that this announcement comes out, it seems to me that almost typically of the current administration, um, it's as much about um, bargaining positions, sending messages, as it is about actually doing anything. Now, we'll wait and see whether anything is done. But I think that um, you mentioned Mikhail Gorbachev's intervention. 
And I think that that is that's something that is so indicative in a way. I mean, it seems so long ago. You know, this is 30 years since Gorbachev and Reagan signed that agreement. When they signed it, it was it, it was seen as an something that changed the script probably forever. But those th- 30 years ago seems a, a, an absolute Eon well, it, it it really does. But just just to follow that up, Mary, is there then an element of theatrics about this? As in, has this treaty been overtaken by modern reality? Russia now, relative the, to the United States, is a far far weaker entity than the Soviet Union was to the United States thirty years ago. Yes, and the accusations that the United States is making on the sort of is on relatively small technicalities um, that Russia has breached this treaty. And I'm sure if Russia thought hard, it could find ways in which it would say that the US has breached this treaty, or at least others, not least by having troops um, technically not stationed in Eastern Europe, um, but rotated in and out of Eastern Europe so as not to be... uh, stationed there technically. Um, There are a lot of things that are falling apart with this agreement and indeed began to fall apart when when the Cold War ended. So you can say that in a way maybe it doesn't make that much difference that all these apocalyptic sort of predictions that we're on the eve of a new escalation of nuclear weapons that that may actually not be true. Uh, John, would I be overthinking things massively if I suggested that with the midterms in mind, this is President Trump uh, trying to look like he's not in Vladimir Putin's pocket by taking a stand on something that he doesn't really care about, that doesn't really matter, and he's perfectly happy to let Putin have anyway. Uh, It's quite possible that this is about the midterms. You're right. But I think also there are real operational concerns. Uh, The Russians, after all, have never explained uh, to anybody uh, how they can justify the development of the new cruise missile that they came up with a a couple of years ago. And it was condemned not just by the United States, but but, but by NATO. Stoltenberg put out a very strong statement against it. That was a a very clear and quite flagrant violation of the treaty. Moreover, I think the United States feels that the treaty is now out of date, not just uh, because Russia keeps violating it, although Russia does, but because it doesn't cover China. And while... Well, that's the the overtaken by events there. That's the big event it's been overtaken by. Uh, I'd need to parse that sentence, but I think I probably agree. (laughs) The the, the, the (laughs) fact that China is obviously a much more powerful and important country than it was 30 years ago as well. Yes, absolutely, and has been busy building all kinds of missiles, including missiles uh, which would be covered under the the INF, which of course doesn't apply to China. I think uh, apocalypse, I I, I don't think I I, I go into apocalypse, but uh, scrapping the INF is dangerous because remember that one of its principal uh, reasons was that if you are not allowed to build intermediate-range missiles, that means that to escalate from conventional weapons or from uh, conventional weapons plus uh, local battlefield nuclear weapons uh, upwards, you have to make a leap to strategic weapons. You It stops the kind of slow incremental increase that people back in 1987 were so worried about that might have led from a conventional exchange through uh, almost seamlessly to a full-scale strategic nuclear exchange. Uh, Mary, there will doubtless be, if the United States does, as anticipated, withdraw from this, a, a certain amount of theatrical huffing and puffing from Moscow, which is, is probably fair enough, and they're, I'm, they're doubtless entitled to it. Will they actually care? 
Well, they are in the process of developing a whole new range of different sorts of weapons um, to try and bring their arsenal, as they would see it, into the modern age. And some of these were, there was curtain raising on these weapons when um, Putin gave his sort of state of the nation address. And he did it with all sorts of wonderful technological help to the point where quite a lot of people abroad were saying, well, you know, how much of this is fiction, how much of it is fact. Um, I don't think Putin will want to give the impression of being left behind in the, in the quest for very modern, um, smart weapons. And that's, that's what the Russians are looking for at the moment. But also, I think there is an extent to which Russia feels that it's a little bit on the side of the angels, because the, where it was really aggrieved was when the United States unilaterally abrogated the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And that was done with absolutely no warning whatever. And that cleared the way, as Russia saw it, for basically the Star Wars um, technology for the US to develop that. And Russia is very scared about that and it felt that the abrogation of that treaty was something that really did matter and affected their security directly. Um, I think this is quite a bit less than that. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Mary Dijewski and John Everard. Coming up next, Brexit. There's probably only about another hundred years of this to go. Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our bi-annual Top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians and get a few tips from developers and retailers making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dejewski and John Everard. It's only Monday evening, which means we can hopefully assume that our listeners still have reserves of will to live on tap, and so to Brexit. Theresa May, Prime Minister of the UK, as we go to air, has been addressing Parliament, claiming that 95% of a Brexit deal with Europe is done, which is less reassuring than it sounds when you consider how willing you'd be to drive across a bridge 95% built. The sticking points are the same sticking points as have been stuck for the last 28 months, most notably the Irish border and how to avoid having one. Um, John, as of her statement this afternoon, she's apparently now proposing some sort of joint UK-EU customs territory. They, they could call it a customs union. 
Well, yes, but they won't, will they? Because that will set the cat among the pigeons. And, and I don't think anybody really understands quite how this is going to work. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's become clear over the last 28 months that the, the problems over the Irish border, that there is no middle ground, there is no negotiable solution there, uh, that the distances between the two parties are simply too great. Uh, 95% sorted, yes, uh, but no diplomatic treaty is ever done until you get the 100%. And the last 5%, the last 10%, whatever it is, is always the difficult bit. This, frankly, is not looking good. Uh, we are now in October. Uh, we've had various postponements of the famous crunch meeting that's been supposed to happen repeatedly in Brussels to decide the way forward. Uh, we are rapidly running out of time. And unless somebody pulls a rabbit out of a hat really very quickly now, uh, this whole process is going to go right over the edge of the cliff. Uh, Mary, the Prime Minister is also talking about extending uh, the transition period to no later, I quote, than mid-2022. Is this basically what Theresa May is trying to do, to keep kicking this thing down the road until we get to a point at which opinion polls start to run fairly solidly? I don't know, 65, 35, 2, for the love of God, just stop this uh, and then call another vote? I find that difficult to believe. I think that um, one of the things about Theresa May is that she puts duty above almost everything else. And I think she sees it as her duty to get this legislation through and to get an agreement. Um, but m might it not also be that she sees her duty as being at this moment to, to save the country from itself? Well, I think that is true, but I think she would see that in terms of reaching some sort of agreement, even if that entails postponing the actual um, implementation for a year, two years. But the problem there is that she is going to run into enormous... Well, we've seen it already this weekend when the rumours of what she was going to present this time around were around, that she is going to run into enormous problems with the arch-Brexiteers who, who absolutely reject they see the idea of any any delay, any extension, however you like to put it, they see that as pushing things further down to the point where it may never happen. So I think that it's going to be extremely difficult for her to do that. Um, and even if she were to reach agreement with Brussels on that, getting that through Parliament might actually be quite difficult because she would be opposed on both sides. She would be opposed by the, by the arch-Brexiteers who would say this means it never happens and she would be opposed by, by, by the people who are deep down remain supporters who would say, come on, you can, you've got to do better than that. This is, this is no position to hold. I just add a footnote that, I mean, I, I, I was in Northern Ireland. I, I went in August um, and there was a very strong feeling there that London really did not understand the complexities of this, that really it had to be that, that there was a choice between all or nothing, that compromise was going to be practically impossible. Mm. Um, and there was a deep sense of despondency there. And it just seems to me as though this is gradually, only gradually, coming to be appreciated in, in Westminster. What was already seen very, very clearly, both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland and in Brussels.
I mean, imagine politicians in London failing to grasp the complexities of the political realities of Northern Ireland, absolutely unprecedented in the stories in the story of these islands. Uh, John, you were among uh, the crowd uh, marching on Saturday here in London, one of the larger gatherings of human beings in the in the history of the United Kingdom. Um, it was big, uh, but does it change anything? Does a demonstration of that scale uh, alter the political dynamic? Various comparisons have been made to the even bigger demonstration circa 2003 against the invasion of Iraq, which listeners will recall did not make an awful lot of difference. Well, that's right. Will it make a difference? I think it probably will, uh, not least because entirely fortuitously because of course the demonstration was planned a long time ago it happened to land just last Saturday uh, just before Theresa May addresses Parliament and just before we have this critical series of meetings uh, coming up over the next week maybe fortnight uh, which will largely determine what happens next and having the voice of 700,000 people ring it in your ears will have an impact um, I, I know the organisers were rather disappointed uh, that the, the previous story we are talking about uh, the, the murder of Khashoggi uh, has pushed the news of the march off the headlines. Uh, nevertheless, media coverage has been extensive and I think will give a lot of people food for thought. What do you think, Mary? Do, does a demonstration literally of that size actually change the way a Prime Minister thinks about this? Well, I think that there, there is a distinction, I agree with John, between the, um, the, the, the anti-Brexit demonstration and the anti-Iraq war demonstration in that the government at the time of Iraq was very... Almost um, evangelically in favour of the war, and the government appeared to be united behind it. So did um, the opposition. Have, in fairness, we, we absolutely, and we have a we, we have a much more uh, a much weaker government. We have lots of national disagreement, um, which in a way makes uh, ma- makes it a bigger contribution. Um, I also remember because the, at the time of the Iraq war demo, I was actually in France and saw the footage because there were anti-war demos all around Europe and they got to London and they said this is a truly staggering turnout because the Brits don't come out on the streets very easily. Um, and I think you'd say the same thing about this, this demonstration. But I would also say that um, even though, um, even as an ardent Remainer, I did not go to the demonstration. And the reason is that I actually don't think a second referendum is a good idea. I think constitutionally, it's very, very questionable. Um, the idea that you have a, a you, you mask having a rerun of the referendum by asking a different question, I think, is very questionable. Okay. well, finally tonight, if recently frocked US Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh thought his travails were at an end, he had, if you will, misjudged. A coven of witches gathering in New York City have cast a hex upon him. Maddeningly, the wreakers of this havoc would not go into detail about what misfortune may befall Kavanaugh as a consequence. However, and inevitably, at least one self-styled exorcist has promised to offer up countervailing prayers, so it presumably all evens itself out. Um, have either of you ever had a hex cast on either of you? Me, several, yes. I have actual experience of this. I have had a hex cast upon me. It was cast upon me by a, a speed metal singer called Glenn Benton oh. of the dreadful group Deicide, who, after I reviewed his band's first album in Melody Maker, I was later informed by his publicist, cast a hex on me. 
That sounds pretty scary. Have you survived, clearly? Well, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, maybe me being here now is, is some sort of part of the punishment that, that Glenn Benton wrought. Who knows what my life would be like had I not rubbished Deicide's dreadful first record in Melody Maker. My review started with the phrase, whoever said the devil had all the best tunes never heard Deicide, and it went, went rapidly downhill from there. Hi, Glenn, if you're listening. Um, Mary, is, is there... Is there any harm in this? Would, would you ever? Do you have any superstitious rituals in which you have attempted to sort of thwart your political uh, enemies? Well, I, I have to admit that my sort of political scepticism um, translates into scepticism about <laughs> those sort of things as well. And of course, you have, in a way, you have to accept the terms of a hex in order for it to be effective. Um, so no, but I, I, I mean, I would very much like to compensate for my absence and non-support for the uh, for the protest march by maybe um, casting a hex on Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, I think maybe a hex it could be a bit more effective than whatever else is going on. John, are, are you a hex caster? If that is indeed what you do with hexes, I'm not sure of the delivery system. Not actually a caster. I have been a recipient of various hexes because I've been involved in visa decisions in West Africa oh, that have course. gone against the applicant. And, <laughs> and in the British visa section in, in Lagos, you quite often find little wax models clearly in intended to resemble uh, visa officers who decline visas uh, with various pins stuck in rather sensitive parts of them. Outstanding. Did you, do, do you collect them? Do you still have these? No, sadly no. They were all swept away and put somewhere safe. That is in, in a hex-free zone. I, I am reminded at this point that my, my late mother was in the habit of writing the names of politicians who had vexed her on pieces of paper and putting them in the freezer. I, I'm not really sure what that was supposed to accomplish. She, she was once in a position to actually explain this to one of the politicians she'd done it to, uh, who she later reported seemed somewhat perplexed, which I think was a reasonable reaction, if I'm honest. Did he also shiver with cold? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that was... I d did he have, was he suddenly struck by pneumonia? I never quite concluded what the purpose of it was, but it, it, it made Mum feel better. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's episode. Uh, Mary Dejewski and John Everard, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Mamone. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's The Culture Show with Rob Bound. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm your host for that as well. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.